Hi, this is Barry Katz, the co-host of Hollywood 2.0. This is the first episode of 2013, and I have an exciting announcement. February 1st, I'm going to be participating in the Starb Weekend in San Francisco that's focused on transmedia storytelling, where collaborators from multiple disciplines, from programmers to storytellers, are going to work together over a few days to create fantastic projects. You can register for this event at transmediasf.starbweekend.org. Now moving on to our guest, Tom Pinchuk. He's a writer for comics, animated TV series. He's also a web personality. So you mentioned uh, licensed comics. Mm-hmm. With that, you know, people see like Transformers, you see Godzilla. Do you see kind of like a story bible, or is there any individuals that kind of manage the IP, or do you have this total free range? Oh, no, no. We right? got, uh, on the book I'm working on right now, I got the bible for the series. I got 20, uh, uh, you know, a lot of sample scripts from other uh, iterations of the, of the property. I actually got the consumer report uh, plan where they, they planned everything from how the packaging on products would look to what the the various merchandise they already had designs for every conceivable kind of merchandise there uh profiles of the characters uh uh, manifestos about what sort of audience they were trying to appeal to uh, so on and so forth it was very detailed how long is a typical uh, bible that you'd see that would basically you know guide the writer and the artist for any of the spinoffs well, those were hundreds of pages. Hundreds of pages. Yeah, um, but then, but that was one one series. The, the other series that I I pitched on that didn't I didn't ultimately didn't get to work on. We got very little to work with. And actually, there was a funny situation where they didn't have access to a bible, and uh, they didn't have access to a script. We just had the consumer guy, which didn't really get too much in the story. So I actually had to go look online, and I found a wiki fan project. For for the series that was interestingly enough, the editor wanted the URL of so he could go <laughs> work with it himself, because that was the funny thing was the fans actually got into more detail about the the mythology than the actual Bible did. I guess that's interesting. You have a user generated story Bible, and then you actually have the one driven by the IP holders. Yeah, well, it's I, I've worked also in. One of my and the many hats I wear, I've also worked in in doing uh, web content, and I work as a web personality. And uh, the work I've done with Whiskey Media, uh, they they were f- f- um, based on having a wiki, like uh, their own encyclopedia, that would get a lot of times probably more detailed than the actual. I bet the internal documents that were at some of the companies they were doing the doing the write ups of, like the comics or the movies or what have you. But it's just if you have a fan and they're enthusiastic about your property and they feel a sense of identification with it and they want to have that documented, then there's plenty of evidence out there of how above and beyond they will go. Do creators from other platforms draw from uh, the same well of the story bible that the comic creators are working from? I mean, they probably. I, I would have to speculate. They probably got uh, the Bible to work with. They might have even had. They probably had less to work with in the case of the show that I, um, the one that I am working on, because uh, we were getting the merchandising. Uh, because this is what this was. This tie-in comic was merch by by the strictest definition. It was a tie-in product, not the product itself. Um, 
so I don't the, the the people involved in writing the the series itself probably weren't seeing that because what they were working on what probably wasn't considered merchandise if that makes sense. I see. So there's sometimes a difference between a story extension versus something that kind of lives on its own. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, I guess it's it's for all intents and purposes. Like, I mean, it's funny because you're working something on, on freelance and you're working out of your living room for all intents and purposes. You might might as well be writing science, uh, not science, it's in, uh, fan fiction because I'm watching it on TV and I'm speculating about what's going on just as much as anybody else was on that particular property. Well, it's interesting was I've heard of some uh, like TV writers that would go on the wiki and they would see some fan fiction. And there's this kind of weird cycle is that they get inspired by how the fans interpret it. So it's interesting to see that as this ecosystem of uh, interpretation. Yeah, well, I mean, sometimes you have to think about that. I, I guess it comes down to context and circumstances that, you know, to... In one world, a fan fiction writer might just be on the staff of a show and probably be doing a, a reasonable job. It's just it's a matter of have they been willing to put the work into refining what they're doing or trying to reach out and trying to establish themselves as a, as a, as a creator or have they just been writing in their little notebook and putting it in their dresser and maybe sharing it on some fan fiction portal. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's I, I, I think it's certainly exciting the notion that Sometimes you, 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 you create something and it goes off into the world and inspires people and they, they have as many conjectures about it as uh, you've had about stuff that you grew up on. Um, it's funny because I, uh, I, was, I went to a panel one time where there were people involved in, uh, I think it was like the new version of Scooby-Doo, and one of the guys who was the writer on it was laughing about how they would make an arbitrary decision about maybe Shaggy would wearing a, a, a jacket someday, or, or there's some other incidental detail that didn't really make. Or no, I think it's probably more involved with that. Like they introduced a car or some new kind of car, and then he was just surprised that the message boards about the show were having all this people reading into it and, and having all this conjecture and speculation about what it could mean or where it came from, where they were literally just pulling it out of their pocket. <laughs> Well, it's like Twin Peaks, the TV show, had a huge following, and then online they had all sorts of speculation constantly, or other shows like Lost, which keeps sustaining a certain level of mystery and ambiguity. Well, I always think about, again, I'm not really, I mean, some people have strong opinions about Chris Angel, I'm, I don't especially have strong opinions about the guy, but uh, I, I always remember this one time he was on Larry King, and he didn't. He, they were doing an interview, and they were answering questions from the audience, and someone asked, has something ever gone wrong with one of your illusions? And he said, actually, things go wrong all the time, but the audience doesn't know. And half the time they're not even noticing because their attention is elsewhere. And part of the fun and part of the art for him was to improvise and try to incorporate what might have been an, actually been an accident, but then make that seem like it was an element of the illusion. And I really took that, uh, took that to heart as uh, breaking down the relationship between people who create stories and create media and the people who who read them or watch them or just consume them in one way or another that a lot of times I've, I've met comics creators who i was a huge fan of and i've idolized and then you meet them and you, you think that the, the great works you enjoyed were create created in ideal circumstances in some kind of ivory tower where everything is going right and then you you find out that the people involved were running behind on deadline and mistakes were made and people were nervous and unsure of themselves, but you don't know any better because you're not seeing that side of it. And uh, 
do you try to avoid these uh, influences of, of these fan communities to live in a vacuum to kind of live in that space and grow out of it? Like, what? How do you deal with that? You know, aspect of the creative process. I mean, honestly, I've never had a situation like that yet. Uh, that I think that'd be pretty cool. Uh, I've on my web in the stuff I've done on the web. There's been occasions where. Uh, Things happen behind the scenes, and people watching what we do speculate about what's what's really going on, and it's usually just wild guesses, and it's not really <laughs> pertaining to what's actually happening. Or there's been there's been rumors on rumor sites about comics companies I've been involved with, and again, going back to what I was saying, I'm not really especially wired. I, I never I'm not I never been really comfortable with the way a lot of people are with Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever kind of social media that whatever is going on in their lives and whatever is going behind the scenes they immediately comment on with total honesty and you know forthrightness. It's looking at the magic trick of life but first seeing that that sleight of hand and seeing the mechanics behind it. So there is kind of a beauty of not knowing. Well I mean yeah I mean, or, or just that if if something just as a professional, too, I think that if you're involved in something and something goes wrong, it's not incumbent on you necessarily to tell everybody about what's going on behind the scenes. Like if you're working for somebody, they have a message that they're going to put forth and it's it's really not incumbent on me to try to contradict them in a public arena or try to put my angle on that as well. Um I mean, and also I guess the other side of this, too, is that when it comes to like criticism and um, – Criticism and praise online, you can see something that's really praising your work and feel great about it, and people get into really detail, and you feel like they're really responding and they're getting you, and you feel special. And then you can see people online being very dismissive and mean and unnecessarily personal when they're they're ragging on your work. So it's not with the most accurate feedback loop because anywhere you look, it give you a completely different signal. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I look at it kind of like this, and I, I try to keep perspective on. Whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm commenting on, is 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 kind of two things. Is, um, you know, there was some line I forget in, uh, I think it was an issue of Sandman, <laughs> uh, where uh, I think it was something like the 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 message to some people of the emperor has no clothes is just like you know people who are in charge are idiots. But then there's another message to it too that the people who are standing there, the peasants who are there standing there pointing out that the emperor has no clothes, well, then tomorrow's going to come and he's still an emperor and they're still peasants. Um, so what I, I just mean that in whatever you do, there are always going to be people there who are going to criticize and there's always going to be people there who disagree with you, uh, whether they're right or not. You can choose to listen to them or you can just choose to continue on. And I, I think it's better to just do what you're doing because you listen to too many opinions. You're not going to – you're going to lose sight of your own opinion. But at the same time, it's, it is worthwhile. I, there's no one There's no one answer no, to any of this. Definitely. But. With movies, you've seen that Twitter is like the fastest review around and it just spreads like wildfire, whether it's a positive review or a negative review. And I've heard uh, people in the marketing side of uh, the studio saying that a great film will do potentially better and a worse film will do worse. Do comics have that kind of impact on sales based on that quick word of mouth? Uh, I mean, there's there's hype, and I know some creators who are very good at playing the hype machine and, and kind of creating uh, buzz where there isn't really buzz and it's kind of a vaporware thing. But uh, I think people are smart. People are, and I think you can only get by for so long before 
people reading your book realize it's no good and they don't keep coming back. Like there has to be a certain baseline level of quality or if there's great quality, they'll keep coming back. But I think that if it's bad, if it has success, it's only going to be for so long. Well, I'm saying that there's that uh, transparency of quality. So I'm saying if something's good, does it like shoot up, you know, faster? If it's bad, does it fall faster? Base of that uh, facilitator. Oh, message? gee, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that you know every field always has something that a small audience really loves, and for whatever reason, it gets canceled before its time, or it doesn't get to be as prominent as it needs to be. And there's plenty of times where something that a lot of people hate. And they dislike is somehow being successful or somehow just continuing on. So I, I don't think that there, you know, I don't think there's necessarily like a core. I don't think there's any more correlation in comics than there is in any other field. All right. And um, why does Marvel's universe lend itself to film and TV adaptations that have more of an interconnected stories than DCs, which seem to stand on their own? Well, that was that was Stanley's mo from the beginning, basically. Uh, I mean, DC, I, I think that the whole... It, it's kind of in a funny... It's funny to track the evolution about how the, 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 the different continuities of superhero universes developed and for uh, both of those companies and how they did. I mean, DC kind of kept acquiring different companies and they would form it together into this mythology that they was sort of uh, 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 squeezing things... or uh, weaving things together, whereas Marvel... You know, they did have, I guess they did have some acquisitions, but there was a case where you had one guy masterminding his notion of having a whole slate of books which were interconnected. And also from a marketing position of trying to make it such they would have footnotes and really trying to emphasize that, oh, you know, Hulk said, this is, the, this is not like the first time I fought you, uh, fought you, Thor. And Thor, then they have a footnote saying, well, check out, you know, Journey into Mystery number whatever to, to go see the first time they fought. And that was. To again, they had engaged a fan base, and they had set up a uh, a way to sort of reward them for <laughs> for picking up more of their books and developing a continuity. And the it was they're both feeding each other. So I think that I think Marvel kind of from the beginning has sort of had that. Um, I, I guess, and that's just translating the movies right now. And, and, and a lot of times. You know, I, I guess some of it too just kind of tends to like the DC characters can be very iconic, and because of that, because they're very powerful personalities or powerful worldviews espoused by the particular characters, sometimes they're not not as easily reconciled with one another. Like Batman's a one man army trying to defend a city, and it's very gritty and real, and that's what people have responded to in these this, this, these new movies. Is does that somehow lose its edge when you're selling in a world where there's an alien from Krypton who can bend steel with his arm, you know, bend steel with his bare hands or melt uh, uh, melt icebergs with his eyes, or there's another alien from Mars who has another set of powers, or there's a dimension and so on and so forth? Does that does that invalidate what you're what you have? I mean, I actually think. The way the chips have have fallen with the Marvel properties, I think, has actually kind of worked to their benefit because Marvel, I guess, to like a lesser extent, there 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 is a little bit of that of can these properties necessarily be uh, reconciled with each other? Or are they invalidating each other in some some way conceptually? Because if you have the whole premise of the X Men is that humanity hates people with powers, right? Well, then you have Avengers. Where they're celebrating people with powers, 
and, 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 or a Fantastic Four. And it, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, it's hard to believe that sometimes the, the public is going to love the thing who looks like a monster made of rocks when they're going to despise Jean Grey, who is this beautiful redhead, right? So I think that's, oddly enough, the way, I think it's worked out better that probably the X-Men franchise has stayed with Fox and the Fantastic Four franchise has stayed with Fox, whereas the rights to everything else has been uh, caught up with Marvel. Uh, I, I think that's sort of given a little more unity to the, the universe they've been presenting, even though you're having like uh, these sort of espionage stories with Iron Man versus you know intergalactic uh, space operas with Thor. Yeah, you have different genres that you could kind of like fit in and shift, but at the same time you could take these different pieces and put them in the same place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think. I mean, I, I think fundamentally too is I remember when every before Avengers came out, there was a lot of. It, it seemed like every time that a new Marvel movie was going to come out, there was always a conjecture of like, "Well, is this character still relevant? It, are people, are, are audiences going to be willing to accept to having Thor and Iron Man on the same screen together? Are they going to be two different kinds of magic? You know, use that term from Save the Cat, or is it? Are they going to be able to? Are they just going to be able to get it? Like, well, they've been doing that for fifty years. And audiences have been, the readers were accepting that. I don't think them, and it, we found on a larger scale, the entire world was going to accept that. They, it wasn't that big of an issue for them. So the rules bend to accommodate all these different large in life characters in the same universe, you know, and then you could take them out and then their rules kind of readjust to fit, you know, what has already been constructed. Yeah, well, I mean, I. I I was at Long Beach, I think, uh, the year before last, and Shane Black was uh, the Long Beach Comic Con. Shane Black was doing a talk, and this was right before he was. He, I think he had just been announced he was signed on to Iron Man, and he just said that he was looking to. He he didn't want to get too like he felt that there was like a sweet spot of of fantasy and reality in Iron Man that was sort of essential to the tone, and he was going to be careful that with Avengers. You're having them fight aliens, and there's having these all all these other concepts. But he wanted this one to kind of get back to the more international espionage, you know, Tom Clancy, James Bond level of fantasy that, uh, without getting too far carried away, which I think is, you know, we'll find out. We'll find out in a couple of months about if if you're able to go back after that. Well, it's almost like there's a, a reality that you live in, and then there's the other dimension. And then for them to be able to move outside of that kind of home they live in, like Iron Man, you said there's kind of this government conspiracy which you would associate with it. But for them to like leave that, it's almost like going to another dimension which houses all the characters at once. Yeah, well, I, I think the theme, if, if there's been if there's been any kind of uh, thread connecting everything I've been blabbing about just now uh, this, this whole time, I, I think audiences like continuity. And I, I think that's something you're finding now on a bigger scale because uh, for a long, I mean, for as long as I've been reading comics, it's like continuity was might as well have been a bad word because people don't like that, and, and it is something that can can be taken to excess where you're really just trying to like, you know, sweep up your house and maintain appearances rather than trying to tell something that people are going to be fundamentally excited about. But I I think that we're seeing now that. Uh, you get done with with one comic or one book or one movie you like. What's the first thought you're going to have? Where's number two? And then if if not that, then and especially you feel kind of gypped if you get to number two and, and important stuff or even minor stuff that happened and number one is not acknowledged or it didn't count. Um, and I think that's that's getting back to what you're saying. I think like an audience loves it when they're engaged. They love it when their time is respected. And I think part of that that being their time is respected is that. 
what they've read gets justified and continues to get justified by what they continue to read or what they continue to watch. So I think that's something we're seeing right now where you're having four individual movies in the Marvel uh, slate that then cross over into one big one and there's what you know there's 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 this sort of timeline that interconnects it's not too involved but you can still watch Captain America without having watched anything else but if you have watched the other ones it it makes all of them more enjoyable and that's something comics have been doing for decades now if you could control the destiny of the film you know bat, film world for Batman would you continue to branch off of what Christopher Nolan's already created or would you open it up and create more flexible rules to include characters from DC? The one well, that's, that's, well, that's the million dollar, the billion dollar question, isn't it? Um, uh, I like what Christopher Nolan did. I think it, the, the thing is that Batman has been around so long that there's just every conceivable angle you can take on him. And the really over-the-top... Uh, cheeky, surreal version has, is can be just as interesting as the more gritty, down-to-earth, downplayed, understated, realistic take on it as well. Uh, what I did like about the movies was that I, I think with a lot of these with with a lot of these ongoing serials is that you sort of have a lot of conceptual points that really kind of maybe don't fit logically into how the, how the scenario would play out, but because you have to be back month after month or week after week, you have to let things go. So anytime somebody criticizes Batman, I, I, you know you continually hear like in circles of like manga or like the you know people justify the Punisher, or they justify like anime where the good guys kill the bad guys, and they think that Batman's policy of not killing is stupid, right? And they say how can, he's actually just as culpable as the villains that he uh, takes on because because he lets them he just throws them in jail just to break out. And they go kill more people. Isn't he responsible for that? Well, that doesn't really. That's that's only because they're they just keep getting to you know they just keep breaking out because they they're popular villains and people want to see them. Logically, in that scenario, when Batman puts the Joker up, he might break out once, and then he put them put him back. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Well, one's based on an overall philosophy and serving kind of like this mind, like this kind of it's larger than just a man. It's this viewpoint of the world where. I will fight for this. It's it's basically saying that instead of killing person to save many, it's basically living based on a principle. Yeah, yeah, and I, but but the thing is about all you know, stories are, are kind of justified by their endings, or they they made the sense is made by them by their endings. And I I think another kind of conceptual leap you have to make is that Batman would be at this war on crime for years on end. Logically, he would have to be making progress. Logically, he would start. He would be running out of villains. You know, he would he would be changing Gotham into like an actually, you know, something of a safe city. So I think what I enjoyed about about Dark Knight Rises and it was a controversial thing because the hardcore fans that didn't fit in with their version of Batman is that if he's not, he he beats crime. He actually beats crime in Gotham City, and there's really no reason for him to be around anymore. And I think that fit in. Logically, if, if if he was doing what he was supposed to be doing and have the success, there's only so many people he can beat. Uh, so then the question is: is like, what do you do after? Can is there a story to tell after that, or does it kind of invalidate what you've seen? Um, I think if if I don't know, I mean, if they end up doing Justice League, I mean, I think like the 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 the, the ballpark is totally open about what they possibly could do with it. Uh, the question I, is what you want. 
a what I want. Yeah, you have a choice of keeping this Christopher Nolan world of Batman alive instead of, you know, obviously you can't have Christian Bale. He's out of the equation, but still keep that tone, the kind of framework that was created. Or do you start from scratch with a larger open world that you could blend in with various, like, you know, film franchises? That's a tough one, actually. I I think they'd have to start from scratch. I, I think that, I mean, especially because the way he, he was, the way Nolan and his brother and uh, Goyer's vision of this world was the fact that they ruled out a lot of the villains in the rogues gallery as being uh, too silly or too outlandish to fit into their world. Uh, you couldn't really do someone like the Mad Hatter probably in that world unless you significantly change them. And I think that's a gimmick that if you if you kind of push that button too many times, it's going to get, uh, it might get old hat. So I think, and again, I think the comics again have kind of proved an example that well, once you do Bat, you know Frank Miller's Batman, here comes uh, Grant Morrison's Batman. That's in the complete opposite direction, you know. And here's Scott Scott, Scott Snyder's Batman. So I think if they're going to do another Batman movie, well, no, if they are, uh, I, I think they, I, I think they should go in a completely different direction. And I guess it's kind of like the question. If the story world of DC and Marvel is bigger than any one auteur, or one auteur is bigger than the world, and I think with Christopher Nolan, it was like, hey, I have a very clear vision of what I want here, and that might make it a bit more narrow, but it would also create a beautiful thing. So it's a kind of push and pull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think Marvel's kind of fell into a a production model now where they only, I, I, from what I've been, because they didn't. Um, they're doing like the Phase Two films, and the only director they seem to be bringing back is um, Josh Josh Whedon on the next Avengers. Everybody else, uh, it's a new director on it on Iron Man, and it's a new director on Captain America, and it's a new director on Thor. I, I think they're probably getting in a position where they want to have different interpretations of the material with each movie, and give give a, give somebody new a chance to uh, do a spin on these iconic characters. Kind of like the James Bond franchise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, pretty much like that. Um, I, I think obviously people didn't know who Christopher Nolan was, or they before Batman Begins, he was just that guy who directed Memento, and then now he's pretty much the topic du jour if you're even like yeah. a casual movie fan. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's. Uh, who knows? I mean, I I, I, I think that if if DC ends up having a, a, a ramped up slate of films, it's it's hard to kind of. Pay. I I don't think they're going to be directly emulating what Marvel's been doing. So they'll take on their own style, and what would be their approach differently? Because you said they've done something for a while, and by expanding Batman, that would kind of make it like Marvel. But what would be the differences? Like you know, in, internally, you feel that they're discussing their strategy. And their advantages to it versus Marvel's, which is more, I guess you'd say, open. Um. Well, I, I think that I, I think. I mean, who knows what what we're gonna find out with Superman and in the and the, the new Man of Steel movie? I think that ideally they do need to. I think Superman the most is that that better be the 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 most aggro, superhero movie you've ever seen because I think that. Uh, Audiences want their their hero to be a little more take charge and a little more edge to him, and I don't think you necessarily need to make him a a jerk. Um, but I do think that Superman was the, the the intrinsic appeal of that character was you're going to have a character who's strong, who's going to beat the crap out of these villains, and that's something they've kind of strayed away from in 
a lot of the mainstream versions of it. So I think you need to have Superman as Goku, essentially. Actually, I mean, I don't know if this necessarily answers your question, but I, I think what would benefit the um, if the D, if there's if the DC movies are going to be successful and maybe not directly following the example of the Batman movies, but I think if there's something to be learned from that is it's more about taking something outside the usual pool of inspiration for superheroes and trying to apply it to what they're doing right now. So Batman, uh, the latest trilogy, uh, Christopher Nolan said, well, where'd you get the, you know, uh, someone asked like Christopher Nolan, what was your main point of inspiration for dark Knight?" He said, heat. he wanted to make a movie like, like heat, you know, remember that the Val Kilmer. Yeah. Um, and and then like this latest one, I think that they uh, 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 Dark Knight Rises was more of a war movie, and a, a, even surprisingly enough, Jonathan Nolan, the screenwriter, was saying that he was inspired by Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities, like partially for for that, and even for performances. Uh, you, you think about what the Joker sounds like, and Heath Ledger got up there, and he sounds a little bit like. Tom Waits, a little bit like Sid Vicious, a little bit like James Cagney at points, completely out of left field or far removed from what you would normally associate from the Joker, but it worked and it updated him for a new audience. And likewise with Bane, a little bit of Hannibal Lecter, a little bit of, uh, I think there was some uh, uh, gypsy boxer that Tom, Tom Hardy was basing him off of. So I, I, I think that it would benefit from not being business as usual for any movies going out here. I think that if they're going to do the super Superman movie, I think it, you know make it if it's like if they if 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 Zack Snyder or anybody involved with that said you know I looked at uh, Goku or you know uh, Goku the main character from Dragon Ball Z and said and saw something there that made me look at this character in a different way and I wanted to kind of incorporate that into that. You need to hip it up, get like a Tarantino injection, being able to like mix various well, maybe like not, textures yeah. to it. Not not to the level of Tarantino, yeah. but to add different textures and colors that are that an audience will appreciate that juxtaposition. Well, yeah, well I I think the other things too is I think for a lot of the successful uh adaptations of the DC characters, I I'll, the two two of the quotes I, I think I'll kinda remember, at least the points I'll remember, was that um Tom Mankiewicz, who was the, the uh, one the the main screenwriter on the on the Richard Donner Superman movie, his background was in Bond movies, and if you think about that, the, the structure of that was a little bit of a Bond influence because uh, that version of Luthor was a bit more like a Bond villain, and he had a, he had a sexy uh, side uh, sexy uh, girlfriend uh, who she was basically like a bond girl. It was like Superman had this, this sort of flirtation with the bond girl who she was sympathetic with him. And then it ultimately is, she plays a pivotal role in helping him save the day. And that was an influence that they took there from bond. And I think that was kind of combining those two is, I, I think might've been part of why that ended up being as resonant as it was, or there were elements of the Bible they took in like the opening with Jorel was a lot like, that's like the book of Genesis, a little more biblical quality to it. And then likewise, uh, I remember there was a there was an interview that uh, uh, Kevin Conroy, who was the voice of Batman in the in the animated series, which was like the probably the most successful Batman cartoon ever. And it was interesting that the staff, when they were interviewing him, he didn't really have any prior experience with Batman. But they're trying to explain the angst and the 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 conflict and the sense of uh, identity crisis of, of Bruce Wayne. To, of the character to him and he said well this sounds like Hamlet 
And the story goes that the staff was like, yes, that's exactly what we need. Don't don't look at anything that Batman is you know anything that Batman's before. I want I'll play this like Hamlet, or a, an element of Hamlet. And I think that's because he he was drawing from an outside pool. I think that was what made that resonate with the new audience and made that uh, work instead of just drawing from one source. And speaking of coming out with new perspectives, I could see that a lot of DC comics are being rebooted. You know, and um, what do you uh, feel about that? <laughs> Well, I think they. I, mean, I think a business has to do that. I think you have to reboot it. Uh, I, I, I think. I mean, going back to what I was saying about continuity, I, I think that you have to. You know, you have to evolve or die, basically. And I, and I think that. Well, okay. The interesting thing for me was that uh, if you look at the earliest Marvel comics, like they're, what their big three characters were, it was like Captain America, the Human Torch, and, and Namor. Okay. And they kept changing who their big three was. It's always in flux at that company. And even Namor initially was basically, might as well have been uh, the 1930s or 40s equivalent of Deadpool, uh, the Marvel character, because he was like a jive-talking teenager who was fighting wars against humankind and was a really... Uh, anarchistic, anti-social, angry young man. And eventually that character was reinvented 20 years later when he was reintroduced into uh, Fantastic Four as a little more of a traditional uh, hot-blooded prince or hot-blooded royalty character. And that that's the one that wound up uh, uh, sticking with uh, the audience. So... Uh, now, if they had kept playing him like that as, as the angry young man, or if maybe that wouldn't have... He would have been forgotten, so I think that's that's it was. I think it was it was a good idea on DC's part that we're getting into 70, 80 years after some of these characters would be created. It's it's important to try to make them fresh and try to wipe the slate clean and stay true to what's important about these characters, but also try to update them to what what modern audiences are expecting or hoping for or interested in. Here's one of the last questions. Uh, the term transmedia storytelling, on one side, some people think it's just fluff. Other people feel that it's a proper uh, lens to stare at giant you know, franchises and create ways to extend the story to various platforms, whether or not it's TV or comics or mm-hmm. interactive. And I wanted to get your take on this. Well, I, I, you know, from I've I've been on a couple panels about transmedia, and I, I think it's just it's a it's a new term for something that's been around forever. Uh, for one thing, uh, when when Star Wars was first came out, people forget about this a lot. The number one Marvel comic for years, by a, by a significant margin, was the Star Wars comic, and that that actually came out that started coming out six months before Star Wars the movie came out. George Lucas had the foresight to and the interest to try to have uh, branch out the story of the universe he was trying to tell into another medium. Now, that obviously got kept on getting revised along with a lot of other, other things he was doing, but there's been that, you know, pun intended, there's been that empire of video games and comics and cartoons and novels and so on and so forth of that brand. Um, and for me, I, if I if I like a property, I obviously get excited about seeing it in something else. But you know, I, it, it's a tough 
it's a thin line sometimes about what well, what is a tie-in versus what is a you know what's a cheap cash grab versus what's the sensible way to try to translate this brand into another arena. Um, so I, I think that, like for instance, I was just watching a uh, you know I've watched uh, you know a number of times you watch a video game adaptation of something and and you see it either as like a, a direct video or as a, a direct video movie or as a comic or even as a movie sometimes and it's kind of like if you if you really sort of try to evaluate the brand in the video game in its context of pop culture. Is there is the story of this necessarily unique? Is it is it or is it more that you get the opportunity to get choice and sort of role play in familiar tropes? Do you see what I'm saying? So it's like a matter of the story itself might not might, might not or the concept itself might not be that unique, but it's a successful video game because it puts you in that to play so around. So what with some people might feel is familiar, others might say. You know, uh, that's redundant. I want a story extension. You're saying that there is some advantages to doing the same kind of experience, a familiar aspect of it, but uh, engaging in this story world in a, a new way. So it's not changing the content per se. It's the way that you have access well, to I mean, interact. I, well, I'm saying it's like I think ideally that's the case. But then if, 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 if you kind of analyze – okay, let, let me phrase it this way. I think a lot of franchises can be kind of made up of elements of what makes the franchise, okay? Like, what is, what is essentially appealing about it? Pirates of the Caribbean. Would that be appealing without Johnny Depp? Or is it centered by Johnny Depp? Or is it the pirate universe? Or is it the general sense of adventure? And, or is it just ba- basically about, you know, seeing Johnny Depp on there uh, saying lines the way he does or, or, or trying, you know... You know, freaking out the kind of uh, squares in, in this pirate universe. And if you did a comic of that, is it is it necessarily the character of Jack Sparrow that resonates with people, or is it Johnny Depp's portrayal of Jack Sparrow? And is is, is that what anchors the thing, or are there other big personalities in that world which would would translate onto the uh, onto the uh, on the page? Or like Dirty Harry? Are you watching? I mean, it's not really. There's no continuity to that world. There's no bigger concepts. It's it's about uh, Clint Eastwood, and if you did a video game about that, uh, and you didn't have Clint Eastwood doing the voice, is it really that appealing anymore? And the same thing with like with the, with the comic based stuff of that is like you take out uh, the way Clint does what Clint does what he does, and you put that in a comic. What's necessarily left, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, the characteristics. Could they transfer from one platform to another that were appealing to the fan base? Itself? Yeah, and and I think that's. I mean, even like in Star Wars, like I think there's been a lot of amazing uh, uh, Star Wars comics, and there's been a lot of amazing Star Wars novels and so on. But I, I I do think like for instance with that, you know, you think about what is intrinsically makes up Star Wars. A lot of it I feel is influ- influenced by the sound effects and the music that are very distinct. And I mean, in, in that case, there's a lot going on in that. But I think that. I think the video games and the and the and the, the the TV shows, like the cartoons, end up being perhaps better translations. Of that because you're having the sound effects and the music kind of carrying on. And so you, you could also have new advantages because you might do a comic book about, let's say, Fargo, and you go, "Why would someone do that? It's crazy." 
but you could slow it down. You could look at certain details that when you see a film, you can't control the speed as much. Yeah, but I mean, in a case like Fargo, I would kind of question that too. It's just like, what is what is that necessarily going to add? You're taking away the sound, you're taking away the performances, you're taking away the music, you know, so on and so forth. So what's left about Fargo that differentiates it from your other cop procedural? At that point, it's like, well, maybe we should just try to do something inspired by Fargo that would perhaps be, you know... So is it a question of whether or not you bastardize the source material by taking it to a new platform versus enhancing it because this new platform gives a new value add that wasn't an initial, uh, you know, source of the Well, story. yeah, or it's like, you know, maybe the comic gets to get into greater detail about things that are only hinted at on screen or, or in greater scope of what's on screen or... or maybe is a little too intense than what they're able to get away with on screen or too challenging to get away with what they're on screen. So, I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a one-size-fits-all with any of this. And I think that's what get people, gets people into problems when they apply a one-size-fits-all approach to this instead of seriously considering the brand and seriously considering what, what the advantages are of each medium. So basically your uh, state, main statement here is don't haphazardly throw transmit around. If, you, if it, it's important to do a story extension, makes sense. But if, you want to, if someone wants to play Godzilla as a video game and they want to play from the film and they don't want a story extension, they want to know what people were fans of, there's no reason to deviate from that. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's also like a lot of times too where you can do a tie-in a project where you're getting the the backstory of a character where is it really that interesting if it wasn't good enough to make the screenplay or is it uh is it you know maybe not every possible avenue in a story is worth worth <laughs> worth burrowing down into yeah, you um, can't mine just because it's there. You know, you might not be able to get anything from it. Yeah, but I mean, but that said, I I, I think like again, like a case like Star Wars, I I think that they've had tremendous success, like exploring the prehistory of that universe and the future of that universe and and specific corners of that universe because it's such a expansive concept. But then. I mean, it's, there's again, there's like not one size fits all, you know. And I think it it kind of depends on the specific brand and what what you're. Uh... Of course, then again, I, I, despite all my conjecture here, you might say if like if you put the right talent on the book and they know what they're doing and they have something worthwhile, anything can go over. You know, a Fargo comic could work if you had the right people doing it. All um, right, so we'll end it at that note. Do you have any uh, things you want to plug? I don't know what I can talk about. <laughs> Go go to TomPinchuk.com. That's that's the way to keep up with everything I'm doing. I got I've got I've got comics, I've got shorts, I've got cartoons coming out in 2013. Thanks for listening to the first 2013 episode of Hollywood 2.0. You can check me out at PeterKatz.net. That's K-T-Z. You can email me at CatsFilms at gmail.com. <laughs>